Welcome to this Investec Specialist Bank podcast. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider. July was National Savings Month, which provided us with an opportunity to focus on savings in South Africa and assess how we are doing as a nation. To take this conversation further, we have two experts on the subject in the studio. My name is Mark Khan. I look after human resources and organization development for Investec. My name is Renee Grobler and I look after Investec cash investments. We will be discussing not only the economical side of savings, with particular reference to what the latest numbers released by the Investec Give Savings Index tell us, but also the psychological side of savings and how we can help change the savings culture in SA. I'm Karen Johnston and you are listening to a podcast from Investec. George Best was Belfast Northern Ireland yeah. soccer player, played as a winger for Man United and the Northern Irish national team. In 1968 he won the European Cup. Best was one of the first celebrity footballers earning the name Al Beetle in 1966. But his extravagant lifestyle led to various problems. He said of his career, I spent a lot of money on booze, birds and fast cars. The rest I just squandered. (laughs) (laughs) So there's there's a question here around having a good role model. I mean, is that... Well, if he's your father and he said to you every day growing up, live your life, spend your money, you could die tomorrow. And then you meet... Renee and she says look that's not so wise who are you going to listen to your father who was the best soccer player in the world and lived a life or are you going to listen to a wise person like Renee who you don't really have a relationship with so who educates is as important as what is educated psychologically but I mean is there something around that education piece around the role models and people within our society that can encourage the savings I mean this index is looking at starting that conversation does this form part of it perhaps Some of the research that we've seen is really around children's education because that's where it starts. Um, And I think, Mark, that's a little bit of what you're saying. Your savings habits get formed by the role models in your life, not necessarily a role model, you know, of a financial literate person out there, somebody that you know. Um, And I think uh, some of the conversation that we started with the savings index was around what are the fun ways to educate kids? Preaching to people seems to be the wrong approach. I think we've tried that in the industry, not necessarily as well taken up, but there are lots of apps that you can use for your children to to start teaching them about saving, the value of saving. I would agree with Renee's points there wholeheartedly. I mean, so let's take, for example, a child that has a parent that opens a banking account for them and gives them a hundred rand at the age of 10 years old to play with and learn about and teaches them about interest. Consider that versus having George Best as your father. Your intelligence actually is not that important there. It's the the power of the parental influence. I think it's also the sort of household structure. So if you think about how pocket money is dealt with or not dealt with in certain families. So how do children get their luxuries, as an example? I think I'm certainly guilty. I like to give things to my kids. That's how one of the ways I show them I love them. But, you know, is that going to sit with them later in life to think that I should just be getting? Or did I have to save money 
to actually buy what I wanted because that can form a very bad habit in future where mm. it's just about I'm getting whatever I get I spend um, so it is about teaching your children the value of money which I think is different at different ages mm. let's go with this idea of the value of money and I think this is where worldview comes in which is an ideology about life you know we have some kind of a bent out of shape idea around money we don't necessarily think about it in the same way we think about love for example, or friendship, for example, or work, for example. Consider the narrative you have for your life around love and where you pick that narrative up from. You probably would have been better to go to a psychologist and be advised on thinking about love from a psychologist from an early age, but you didn't. You watched your parents interact. You had some early experiences with infatuation at school that went wrong or went right, and this set up the pattern you have with love. Well, it's the same with money. You know, your early experiences around money set up those patterns and those patterns replicate themselves and become deeply, deeply entrenched. I mean, money is about value and value is a psychological phenomena. And then if you add in the idea of a worldview, which is what is life about? And what is the answer if someone said to you, what is life about for you? Money comes into that. And if you say life is for living now, uh, that is a very different philosophy or worldview to life is about a long-term relationship with yourself and your community that you think about prepare reflect on um, and it's about a certain discretion that you have there's a very different way of thinking about life and that all plays into savings habits does that make sense what I just it does said? actually make sense but it's yeah. a bit of a hard sell really you know there is the george best come on guys take the opportunities take life and and let's go for it and then there's the well you know, how do we make it yes. sexy? So, how do we make savings sexy? Well, sa savings actually can be very exciting because if you think about it, what do you get by saving? What you get is a better life, actually, not a worse life because you then find that you have an abundance of resources that last for longer and you can live a better life. The ratio is about controlling your impulses or what um, Scott Peck, he's a, a writer who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. He talks about delayed gratification. Now you can see George Best had zero ability to delay gratification. But mature people delay gratification. So controlling or, or delaying the gratification of your aspirations for lifestyle in a bandwidth of your earnings that is slightly lower than 100% so that you take a piece and put it away. So yes, I can afford to buy the Mercedes-Benz 500, but I would then blow everything I have. So why don't I get the 230 and I have a little piece left over and I put that aside. What I have to do psychologically is I've got to be comfortable right now to drive the 230 and not the 500. That's the delaying of the gratification. And then what I say to myself is in five years or in three years, I'll get the 500. That requires quite a lot of financial discipline. And mm. I think what's, what's interesting is what motivates people to be as disciplined as that. So what motivates an individual to defer his or her gratification? And I think some of what came out of the research is around fear. Um, you know, if you think about deferred gratification in the context of an uncertain environment, as an example, you know, you've got volatility in the markets, uh, or let's take China as a good example. I always ask myself, why is China's savings rate the highest in the world, or of the highest in the world? I mean, as a nation, they save approximately 50% 
hmm. of their GDP. Really? China saves. As a household, um, their household savings is around 30%. It's actually doubled in the last two decades from 15% to 30%. Now, you look at that nation, their GDP has been growing. Yes, it's moderated, but over the last few decades, it's grown. So you would actually argue that, do they need to defer gratification? Because, you know, it's a growing economy. But some of the things that's driven the households there to start saving is actually the change in the economic climate that they had there, the reforms that they had in 78 and 80, which said no longer will the state look after you. Mm. You now have to look after your own retirement, your own medical expenses. You know, there was there was a little bit of uncertainty uh, with the SOEs there. What happened was a lot of people had less job security. So people started saving. Um, another aspect there is that they didn't really have credit extension to the extent that we would in South Africa as an example. So if you wanted something, you had to save for it. You couldn't just go out and from any mm. you know, retailer get some mm. kind of a credit card mm. to go buy your washing mas- machine. You'd have to save for your washing machine. But I think fear in the context of uncertainty you know, was driving uh, a lot of that behavior. And I, I would argue on the flip side, you could have a situation where ambition also drives you. What excites you? What's your passion? What gets you going? So I think there's, there's many kind of motivations that sit behind why people would save from fear to ambition and I guess a lot of things in between. How would we answer the question though, or the statement, that I have nothing left to save at the end of the month? I was ready for that question and I'd be interested in what your view is on that, Ren, but I, I would go back to my earlier point on that, which is that if you have nothing left to save, that doesn't tell you about how much you're earning as much as it tells you about how you are living. So, you know, okay, if you're on really bare bones income and you don't have a roof over your head, fine. Uh, We're not talking about that. But if you are earning enough that you can, uh, you know, finance a car perhaps and you're paying rent or something like that, you have to ask yourself if you've got nothing left at the month, are you not living beyond your means, so to speak? I would definitely agree with you, Mark. I think there are a few things. Sometimes for people in our privileged position, you know, it's hard to put ourselves in a position where your transport and, you know, your housing and your food basically wipes out. Mm. your salary so I think we we have to sort of take a step away from that and say let's assume you know you have a decent ish kind of an income yes Um, and and in that case I think the old cliche of pay yourself first is probably a good one Mm. it's Mm. about priorities and if your priority is very much a lifestyle or keeping up with the Joneses the consequences of that will come home to roost somewhere in the future whereas if your decision is right now let's be a little bit more prudent and you know squirrel away a little bit for future then you know you'll have a consequence of that in your lifestyle right now so it's all about trade-offs and i think you know ultimately some of the practical things that people do to make it less painful because none of us like giving away something we've already received Mm. is to trick yourself into thinking you never received it in the first place (laughs) which is by uh, putting a debit order on your account so that you know the income that's left at the end of the month you know is after you've saved not to try and take the residual of what's left after spending and then save that. So it is about adjusting your lifestyle to the level that you're comfortable with, but being responsible enough to think about the future and not just about the now. See, that little uh, trick you have about the debit order, I think psychologically is very, very clever. Pay yourself first, as you say, Rena. I mean, that that is going to reorganize some of the impulse control stuff where it's not my choice is effectively what you're saying. I mean, obviously it is your choice, Mm. but the trick you're describing is Mm. to say, I don't have a choice, a thousand rand every month or 500 Mm. rand, whatever it might be, 
it goes off on a debit order and forget about it. Yeah. You know, it's done. Yeah. And that forces a constraint into your monthly financial management. Whereas psychologically, if you have to do whatever you've got to do and pay whatever you've got to pay, and then you look at what's left over at the end of the month and then say, let me save from there, the impulse of, of spending is going to be greater. And I think we see it playing out at a bit of a macro level, because if we unpack what's happened in the savings index over the last few quarters, so the savings index number at the moment is 62.4, which is really the lowest it's been since inception of our calculation in 1990. Now, what that really means is the 100 mark is the pass mark for South Africa to achieve a 5.4% GDP growth. The 62 number is more around zero growth hmm. or very, very low growth. So we're sitting at a place where the elements um, that we have to f fuel our savings and investment in our country really isn't there. But if you look at even just our savings rate, we spoke about China earlier, but the savings rate in South Africa is 15% of GDP versus the 50% of China as an example. And the household savings rate is non-existent or negative, which means that people are spending more than they earn, actually, which is quite sad. You know, the debt to income ratio in the country is about 76%, which is crazy, of disposable income. But and that's yeah, with the Credit Act. Exactly. It's Imagine come down if we a bit. didn't have that. It's come down a bit from 80% to 76 But, But what's interesting with all of that negativity, what you see is contractual savings. So the unit trust industry of $2 trillion and the pension fund industry of $4 trillion still rising. You see, if we consider the, you know, the pension provident forced saving, so to speak, versus the discretionary, psychologically we've got the parent mm. saying, I'm taking X percent of your pocket money and we're putting that in a fund for your university every month or every week or whatever. It's the same notion. The child is still not developing the skills and the maturity to have a saving consciousness, call it that. So I think that there's a sort of double bind to the regulatory environment we live in and the degree to which companies insist mm. on their staff mm. putting money away for retirement uh, because yes it works and you can see in the statistics it's working people are then putting money away those are good stats for for saving for retirement mm. on on what i would call forced savings mm. exactly and it, it comes almost back to a bit of the carrot and the stick using the parent analogy so you know if you think about the carrots we've had a lot of the industry saying we need to incentivize savings so bring in tax breaks. You know, what are the other incentives we can bring in? Mm. And we had in March 2015, tax-free savings coming into the country for the first time. And the statistics are now out around how successful that was. And interestingly enough, you know, at the end of Feb, we had 2.6 billion rand in South Africa saved into tax-free savings accounts. And the estimation is that quite a large percentage of that was new savers. So that's a, probably a good initiative in the industry. The argument is, is that enough? And I guess incentives can only get you so far. Uh, there's also a lot of initiatives driven by the associations for saving and the FSB around financial literacy, because that's another environmental factor that we found you know, to be really instrumental as to whether people save. Then when it comes to educating people on the basics of opening a bank account, understanding what a loan means, you know, what it means to pay, pay back a loan. Uh, and, and it comes to investing. I think we haven't done a great job. But, you know, you, you look at it and you consider where would you learn this? 
where, where would you... And where do you? And where do you learn? You it's don't most... learn it at school. Now, in my mind, in grade eight, in high school, hmm. there should be substantial education hmm. on basic money management, financial literacy, and so forth. I think it should be a requirement like maths is yeah. or, or, or English or whatever. You know, it's as important a currency for a successful life. Yeah. You need to speak English to be able to get ahead in the working world. Mm. Uh, and you need to be able to speak money. I agree with you. But I think when it comes to financial education, particularly as you get older, it's about show me, don't tell me. Yeah. You know, when, when you're telling somebody, and I think that's a mistake we, we often make in the industry, is, you know, we're telling people, you have to save. Mm. We're telling them this is how mm. you must save. And just my second point on that is we need to simplify. So talk to people uh, about their savings in their terms. And I think the industry is starting to get a bit better at that. But if we can show people, not tell them, and we can actually start packaging things in a digestible way that's understandable and simplified, I think we'll go a long way to, to helping that culture of education and understanding. Renee, Mark, thank you so much for giving us some insight into the current state of savings from an economical and psychological perspective. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. You've been listening to Investic.